When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I read your first post, actually my mind immediately went to compliance. It went to corruption because it's a subset of fraud. And I thought of 10 things that could be looked at by external auditors in the context of corruption compliance. In this episode, Tom Fox and Matt Kelly take a look at a recent statement by an SEC official, Paul Munter, which mandated that external auditors take a deeper dive into fraud risk. We look at this statement from the compliance perspective as as corruption is a subset of fraud, and we consider the implications for the compliance professional if external auditors begin to look at fraud risk and corruption risk uh, in that context and what it might mean for auditing of compliance programs going forward. Before we get started with our podcast, a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we're going to take up a speech or at least release of some comments by the SEC Last week, at a statement from Paul Munter, SEC's acting chief account, that Matt has written about now a couple of times. So, Matt, what did assistant, excuse me, acting chief accountant Munter have to say? Why did he say it? And what did he say? Why do you think the timing of this statement was what it was? So, thank you, Tom. Yeah, acting chief accountant Munter had a lot to say about fraud. And his target audience was the external audit world, the audit firm world, not directly corporate compliance officers. But Mr. Munter, who has been in that role with the SEC now for several years, and he has been a longtime player in corporate accounting in the big four world. So Munter, who I've seen speak before, he's a very thoughtful person about these issues, he published a lengthy statement, 2,600 words almost, about the external auditor's duty to investigate fraud risk at client companies and basically telling auditors, guys, you got to do better. He said that in consultation with various consumers of financial data or preparers of financial statements, he had heard some quote unquote, particularly troubling feedback that a lot of auditors were telling their clients, we're not opposed to doing fraud risk assessment, but please understand we can only do so much. We're not really required to do a whole lot on fraud risk. There's only so much we can do. And that has been a chronic issue or response from the audit world that they can only do so much to find fraud in their corporate clients. And Munter basically said, nah, no dice, you got to do better. Your job as an auditor is to assess the risk of material misstatement due to error or fraud, emphasis on or, could be either one, 
And basically, he thought that auditors have slipped into the bad habit of mostly looking at the risk due to error and not spending enough time looking at the risk of misstatement due to fraud, deliberate fraud. That would require a different set of auditor skills, a different set of audit procedures, different set of questions they might ask of corporate clients. And so we could talk a bit about that, but also for all the compliance officers who are wondering, Matt, Tom, you've been talking about auditors. What does this have to do with me? It has a lot to do with compliance auditors. And Munter's statement even talks about the importance of auditors looking at the control environment, the tone at the top, the code of conduct, the whistleblower hotline. And we can get into that too, but he did give some very specific examples of how that which auditors should examine to get a better sense of fraud risk is very much in the compliance officer's wheelhouse. So you should not ignore this because ultimately these auditors are going to show up sooner or later in your office or your Zoom call asking about your program. So this is very relevant to compliance officers and to internal auditors who deal with external auditors and to the external auditors themselves. So it's a very meaty statement worth a lot of it. Yeah, I found it really interesting. And I guess the thing that struck me when I read, you've written two blog posts on this. When I read the first one, this is exactly in the compliance officer's wheelhouse. And more importantly, this is exactly what auditors should be doing for and with compliance. And I would note that in 2009, I think it was my second compliance assignment when I went out as a consultant, was exactly this, writing an audit plan for external auditors to look at a compliance program. So this is not a new concept, but let me unpack a little bit of what you said, materiality. Yeah. Uh, I think everyone knows what that is. Auditors are certainly comfortable with that standard. And you even use that word, material. But when it comes to fraud risk, Mr. Munter said, not so fast, guys. We may want to look at non-material fraud economic claims in a different light. So could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so this is one of the tricky parts about auditing for fraud. And this is where auditors would start to say that they can only do so much. Let's say that you are a $5 billion a year revenue company, big company, you've got a big four auditor and you've got a whole battalion of audit people at the external audit firm who go over your financial statements every year. Within that $5 billion in revenue, maybe there is some employee out there who is committing fraud to the tune of one or $2 million over the course of a year or two. Now for the individual, that is a lot of money. I would like to have a million or two million dollars. But to the company with five billion in revenue, that's no, that's not material. That's not a lot. And if a lot of fraud is this, for lack of a better word, penny ante embezzlement of a couple of thousand here or a couple of thousand there, if it is that sort of fraud, auditors are not entirely wrong to say we can't get into that deep of the weeds, so to speak. It's just too small. And we have a day job making sure that there is no risk of error. And honestly, a lot of times there can be risk for errors and those errors nobody might see. There's a lot of very complicated financial processes these days. So a lot of auditors will say if there is an employee who is determined to commit some sort of fraud that is profitable to them, but still small enough to fly under the radar, the auditors will say, look, I'm not going to catch that. Munter wasn't really having much with that attitude in his statement. And he did say very specifically that, uh, let me see if I can pull up the quote here, qualitative factors 
may cause misstatements of quantitatively small amounts to be material. He was referring to what is known as Staff Accounting Bulletin 99, but basically Munter was saying that, look, if you have repeated small incidents of fraud, that does suggest you have a bigger issue in your control somewhere. Maybe it's the control environment, maybe it's the nitty-gritty technical financial controls, but if those things, those small errors aren't being corrected, that means your effort to correct the problems, that's the bigger meta error, and that could be qualitative. Because if you're not fixing the small errors, how do we know you're not fixing the big errors? How do we know that you're not also turning a blind eye to what the CFO is doing, which that would be material? So that was pretty interesting. And I, when I posted my comments on LinkedIn, I had a couple of different auditors basically say, this is really hard. And we're trained to think about materiality and what are we supposed to do here? And I've had other people who then responded saying, that's sloppy auditing and you should do better. Mr. Munter basically echoing those kind of points. So I'm not sure how audit firms will respond to this, but they're not entirely wrong to say if your company is $10, 20000000000 billion a year in revenue or more, you could have what seems to individuals to be a significant fraud of, say, a million a year, that's still not material. So what are we supposed to do with that? And Munter's basically saying, you're supposed to look for it and assume that maybe a misstatement isn't due to error. Maybe it is due to fraud, and maybe you have to get to the intentionality of why did these misstated transactions, why did that happen? Where did it come from? So it's a pointed conversation that he was raising with the audit community. Do you have a sense of or even any questions in your mind as to the timing of the release of this statement? I do have questions about that. I think it's interesting. I don't know, but it is worth noting that this statement came out on, I think it was October 11th or so. That was about two weeks after the end of the SEC's fiscal year, which ends on September 30th, along with all other federal agencies. So what happens at the very end of September is you see a bunch of federal agencies, including the SEC, try to get a whole bunch of enforcement actions done by the, their cutoff deadline. And we saw that with the SEC. And we had a couple of enforcement actions against audit firms toward the end of September. Some of them relevant or really getting at these were sloppy audits, and the auditors should have done better. They should have been more skeptical about what is going on with their client, and did they have bias in favor of their clients. And that was an issue that Munter had talked about, was this pro-client bias that, oh, my client would never do that. Yes, maybe they would. But anyways, we had seen a bunch of enforcement actions at the end of twenty fiscal 2022, at the end of September, and probably... Mr. Munter is just riffing off of those enforcement actions we saw. It's also worth noting that the audit industry's regulator, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, they have whole new leadership this year because their prior leaders under the Trump administration were a mess. So these new regulators or these new leadership from the PCAOB, they are now stepping up their enforcement actions, stepping up their look at audit standards, audit inspections. So the standards that audit firms would have to follow, and then they inspect the audit firms. Are you following the audit standards we have given you? And if not, we might take an enforcement action. The PCAOB is turning up all of that across the board. So I think there's a couple of different forces here that have made Munter say, now's a good time to have this statement out there. 
Also worth noting that a lot of next year's audits will be in the planning phase. It's going to start any day now. And then the audits themselves will typically happen right after your fiscal year end. And for most companies, the fiscal year end is December 31st. So you're going to go through the audit January, February, March, which means your audit firm is planning that audit right now to go into effect once your fiscal year end starts or fiscal year ends at December. So I think that's the timing of it. But it, regardless, he could drop this statement any day of the year. This was an interesting and provocative issue that he decided to raise. Matt, do external auditors have the tools to do the type of auditing around fraud and corruption risk? Another good question that a lot of auditors would, I think, say, not really, not unless we think it. There's a bit of a chicken and egg question here. So there's a difference between financial statement audits, which all audit firms do, and forensic accounting, because you have found a mystery that needs to be unraveled, which that requires a specialist team. Now, any audit firm of any appreciable size will have a specialist forensics team, sure. All the big four auditors have forensic accountants on staff, and they do fraud investigations. But the fraud team and the audit team are separate at most audit firms, and they would have to be more intertwined to be able to do this. Now, under, I think it's Section 10A of the Securities Act, if an audit firm finds evidence of misconduct, finds illegal acts and violations of law, you are obligated to report that and obligated to make a big stink about it. Part of making the stink would be to bring in a forensic accountant and then try and get to the bottom of it. But getting back to what I said, chicken and egg thing, if most auditors these days, and most auditors, they're not veteran partners. The veteran partner is the one who leads the audit, but the ones who do the audits, they're like in their late 20s or early 30s, and they work 100 hours a week for three months of the year. And they're not versed in the nuances of how do you do a fraud risk assessment. They're versed in how do we go through and do an audit of internal controls. We're looking for errors. We're looking for all of this. It takes some really good judgment to be able to see that this issue here could be weird. I want to bring in a fraud specialist. And that 28-year-old senior audit supervisor, like they're not a fraud specialist. The ones who do the guts of your audit. So it becomes an open question. How would you know it's time to bring in an audit specialist to look at this weird thing unless you have experience as an audit specialist, or as a forensic accountant, a fraud specialist? And a lot of auditors don't. A lot of auditors only do financial audits. So I'm not quite sure how prepared auditors would be to be able to do better at a fraud risk assessment. I don't think it's going to be the case that they're going to put a forensic fraud specialist on every single audit engagement. That would cost a lot of money. And most times you're not going to find anything because most times it's not fraud. It is just an error or there's nothing really substantively wrong at all. So I don't quite know how audit firms are going to handle this. Uh, but I have talked with some audit partners who have basically said, you know, like, no, we have forensic capabilities, but they're often another part of the team and we wouldn't normally have them involved. They're not meshed together as well as what Paul Munter says. One more point is that Paul Munter himself, he did note that, but basically all he said was that you should be prepared to bring in a specialist if necessary. And that kind of dances by the issue that 
You're not going to know to bring in an anti-fraud specialist unless you have anti-fraud expertise, which you typically won't if you're the usual audit professional on the usual audit engagement, because usually most of it is just about looking for errors, not fraud. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to be handled this year and in coming years. So it was interesting when I read your first post, actually, my mind immediately went to compliance. It went to corruption because it's a subset of fraud. And I thought of 10 things that could be looked at by external auditors in the context of corruption compliance. Then you came out with your second blog post and you listed, I think, at least half a dozen things that you immediately saw that auditors could look at completely different than the list I had in my head. You were focused on the requirements of a compliance program. So I think between the two of us, we're seeing a lot of application to compliance. I'm going to at least start off, unless you dissuade me, by welcoming it, because I think uh, it's always appropriate to have a second set of eyes. And let me go through my list, because it really is different than your list. I thought immediately sales and any place there's a sales spike of over X percent. What would you look at? You would look at sales and you would start to look at marketing expense, charitable donation expense, business courtesy expense, business travel expense. We could use the Oracle PCFCPA enforcement action that we both studied extensively just as a roadmap in all of the areas where pots of money were created to pay bribes through the distributorship program. You could look at any of those. And so I think it would be great if compliance had external audit looking at these issues from the fraud, and I'm going to say corruption perspective, because corruption is a different form of fraud, but you really had a different angle. So why don't you go through your list and let's talk about that too. I think one important distinction to make is that I agree that corruption is a subset of fraud, but there are a lot of other types of fraud that compliance officers might not be as well-versed in or as immersed in attacking. The biggest one being embezzlement, where it wouldn't necessarily manifest as a big spike in sales. It might just manifest as somebody quietly scooping away some portion of petty cash or vendor fraud or something like that. Now, what you were talking about, Tom, looking at marketing expense, looking at spikes in sales, I would say those are business activities that might be suspicious. So you want to look at them, but there are control activities meant to govern the business activities. And that's all fair to say that we should be looking at that. Fraud fraud analysis should. But Munter also was talking more about entity level controls that exist across the whole enterprise and tone at the top and the control environment. So what would that be? It would, and he mentioned some of these, he mentioned the code of conduct. He mentioned the whistleblower hotline, but he did mention that having them is a good place to start, but it needs to be more than just having them. It can't be a check the box exercise that yes, you have a code. Yes, you have a hotline. Every public company has those things because they are required under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. So that's not a big deal that you have them. It is more about how would an auditor internal or external, how would an auditor try and assess that the code and the internal hotline actually are working in a productive way to decrease the fraud risk? 
So you might look at, say, and this is another example that Munter gave, relevant to the code of conduct. Are you also doing anonymous employee corporate culture surveys to see if they actually do believe that the code of conduct is put into practice? Or do they think the code of conduct is a bunch of bunk from the C-suite that nobody takes seriously? If you are looking at the hotline, maybe the auditor will examine how the hotline works. What are the processes once a call comes in over the hotline to make sure it's investigated and educated and settled, disposed of appropriately? Would they be looking at things like disciplinary action or rates of disciplinary action for different people? You certainly could. And if you find that disciplinary action for allegations against low-level employees is high, but disciplinary action against senior executives is non-existent, that's a big problem with the control environment. And that's the sort of thing that I think Munter would encourage auditors to look at. He even gave the example of maybe the audit firm would talk with the audit committee about how the hotline works and how it can be used or is used to investigate complaints about fraud. If I were counseling a compliance officer, I would say, think that through. Think about what that means, because really, you should be engaging having a very strong compliance program so that you can engage with the external auditor to say, see how great my compliance program is? See, it supports the tone at the top because you're not going to go and have a meeting about the audit committee with my program behind my back, are you? I don't think most auditors would unless your program is really dysfunctional. But think about that. If the audit firm is looking for evidence of a strong control environment, a lot of it would be how the code is put into place, how disciplinary action is enforced, how the hotline works, how employee training is done, how employee training is evaluated, how is it tested. There's all sorts of stuff like that. What you, the compliance officer, would do to document that you have a strong culture of compliance, that is the same evidence the external auditor would be looking for if they're trying to get a sense of the tone at the top and the entity level controls for fraud risk. And whether that's corruption or embezzlement or anything else, I think now we're just dancing on the head of a pin. Who cares? So long as you have a strong anti-fraud program, it's going to solve a whole lot of problems that are both relevant and adjacent to what the compliance officer did. You were on a roll there, so I thought you were going to run through the hallmarks of an effective compliance program. But it strikes me that every one of those hallmarks can be tested as a control, literally starting with the code of conduct all the way down. Yep. And so I just see the... This statement by Munter is really something I think that will assist the compliance professional uh, and the CCO put a second set of eyes on these and perhaps get auditors off dead center to start looking at these things and stop using the excuses of it's outside our remit or we can't do it because whatever you may or may not think of the PCAOB, it seems like this is a very clear message as to their expectations. I think it is. We'll have to see that unfold over time. But if a emboldened PCAOB and a more aggressive enforcement posture from the SEC, if that starts leaning on the audit firms to do much better at assessing fraud risk, they in turn will lean on the company to cough up more data and they'll be asking more difficult questions about fraud risk. While it's in my head, I would give one other very specific example that a big four anti-fraud person told me. You, the compliance officer, you're running the hotline program. You get these calls about fraud. 
what are you doing with those, not just to investigate the specific allegation, but are you doing a root cause analysis to find out what is driving these incidents of fraud? And then how would you take those findings off to, say, your internal audit team or your anti-fraud team that your company has and say, here's what we're finding through the hotline. Adjust your own fraud risk assessment appropriately. Because internal audit is supposed to do its own fraud risk assessment too, just like an external auditor. And that is something that Munter also called out to external auditors. He said, you should be looking at how the company conducts its own fraud risk assessment. And if it's doing a slapdash job, that says something. And you, the auditor, the external auditor, should be a bit more aggressive. So how can the compliance officer help the other parts of the other lines of defense in your enterprise to do better at fraud risk assessment because you're getting the fraud complaints through the hotline. That's another good point that compliance officers should keep in your head. We're going to warm the heart of Jonathan Marks here, but the root cause analysis, I think, should also then be uh, a question should be posed as to how did you use that information to either restructure your controls or remedy whatever it was that allowed the control failure or other failure, which led to the fraud or allowed the fraud or corruption to occur. Yeah, absolutely. Did you do a root cause analysis and what were the results of it? Who did you report it to and how did you use it? I think definitely should be a part of all that. Lots. Go ahead, Matt. No, that's all. Lots to chew on here. And as always, I hope we get to revisit this topic down the road. All right, Tom. Thank you. Take care. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I've got a special five-part podcast series running on innovation and compliance about the intersection of supply chain and compliance. We take a look at ESG drivers, product compliance, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, the Scope 3 Emissions Responses, and Responsible Minerals. This podcast series is sponsored by Ascent Compliance. If you're interested in the intersection of ESG and the supply chain, this podcast is the podcast for you. Check it out on the Innovation and Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.